on the Empire Podcast this week. It's the last regular pod of the year. And just like Teenage Fan Club Circa Grand Prix, we're going full jingle jangle with a veritable cornucopia of Christmas cracker guests. Whoa, ho, ho. It's Keanu Reeves and Carrie-Anne Moss, stars of The Matrix Resurrections. Um... Ciao ho ho, it's Paolo Sorrentino, director of Peter Shilton's favourite movie, The Hand of God. All that and more on the movie podcast that is just about ready to open a big old tub of celebrations and dive right in. Other chocolates are available and I also have a big old tub of heroes, a big old tin of Quality Street and a big old tub of roses just for good measure. What the hell? It's Christmas! Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to episode 495. Is it? Sure, why not? <laughs> I've I don't know. I've lost count at this point of what episode this is. I think it's 495 of the Empire Podcast. This is the last regular edition of the Empire Podcast in 2021. Oh. 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 You know yeah, what? No, you. fuck this year. Fuck it all the way off. <laughs> No Oz. I'm no not all in 2021. 2021. No, no, no. 2020. No, I'm just saying it's the last podcast of the year. But hey, we get a break of three days. <laughs> yes. <Woo>. Yay. <laughs> anyway, I'm joined by uh, my three colleagues of such lethal cunning. We're back on Squadcast for this week, folks. So we're not in the studio this week. We're back on Squadcast. But nevertheless, I'm joined by my three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Geek Queen Helen O'Hara. Hello. Great big fucking nerd, James Dyer. Hi. And the nicest man of serial killing, Ben Travis. <laughs> Hello there. Would you like to play a game? <laughs> oh, that's just creepy. <laughs> Do it not can't hurt no. us, though, because we're remote. So I no longer feel like my life is in jeopardy recording I this podcast. I mean, you say that. Ben called me this morning and all, all I heard down the phone was, seven days, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on. The Squadcast is coming from inside the house. <laughs> Chris, that was just me calling you to say, it's seven days until the Matrix Resurrections comes out. Oh, my God. That's why. That's what all the heavy breathing was about. Ben, should we mark the time by seeing Spider-Man No Way Home every single day until The Matrix comes out? I think that's an excellent plan. It's an excellent plan, and we'll tell you why without spoilers later on in the show. Anyway, welcome to Podcast 495, and you're thinking to yourself, hey, Chris, if you're Podcast 495, then Podcast 500 must be around the corner, and you're absolutely right. Um, we have gone ahead with our plans to hold episode 500 at King's Place on February 5th, Saturday, February 5th. We're aware at the moment that there are concerns about COVID and this Omicron variant, uh, but we're hopeful that it will be, that, that will have abated by February, by, by January, in fact, and uh, we can all go about our business again. So we're going full steam ahead. Tickets are now on sale for episode 500, which, as I've outlined in previous episodes, is going to be a huge event, an all-day jamboree at a spiritual home of King's Place to mark episode 500, a.k.a. 10 years of this podcast. So we're going to have uh, the very first Empire Podcast Quiz, which is a panel-style show in which James and Helen will host a uh, team each. Yeah, That's going to be a clear, lot of we fun. Were n- we were not given a choice on this. That's or just- informed ahead of time. <laughs> no, it's fine. No, you weren't. You weren't. And I, you know, I like to do that every now and again, just to keep you on your toes. Uh-huh. Uh, later in the year, there's going to be an afternoon session as well, which is going to be the very best of the Empire podcast. We're going to have a live three-fact structure. We're going to have a live, the ranking, uh, which 
which I'm kind of leaning towards. I said, I know I said last week I was going to give you guys a choice on Twitter, do a Twitter poll. But uh, it struck me last night in the queue for Spider-Man No Way Home that um, that we are now in a position where we can do Spider-Man movies because there's, quite frankly, fucking loads of them. So we might be able to do a live Spider-Man movie ranking if that tickles your fancy. And we'll also be doing a live spoiler special uh, with someone involved with the film TBC. Uh, which is going to be a lot of fun. And then episode 500 itself is going to be a huge undertaking in the evening of Saturday, February 5th. Uh, and that uh, is going to be, we have budgeted four hours for that. We have allotted four hours for that. Uh, it's going to be absolutely incredible. Uh, we hope. <laughs> As Gans Helen said last week, absolutely incredible, not guaranteed. Uh, but... We would love it if you could join us there at King's Place. Uh, tickets are on sale right now, kingsplace.co.uk. Check Empire's Twitter feed. Check our Twitter feeds uh, for individual ticket links, uh, if you will. You can buy tickets for all three, and then you receive a discount. Uh, or you can buy tickets for individual sessions. Uh, and people have asked me about streaming as well, streaming options. Uh, we have no streaming option put in place right now. If I'm completely honest with you, our focus is on selling out uh, within King's Place. <laughs> we sold out a long time ago as Jimbo pointed out last week. But we want to sell out in the room. This is a big landmark podcast for us. And we're very, very keen to have the room as full as humanly possible. Once we do that, then we'll open it up to streaming uh, as well. But we're really, really keen to have people in the room. Um, I'm going to be completely upfront with you. That is my main priority with this with this show. Uh, so yes, we, we understand at the moment that this is an unusual time to be put on a live event. <laughs> but Time it is what it is, I guess. But uh, we're hopeful that Omicron, uh, we will soon see the back of it. It will be a day long remembered. We'll see the end of Kenobi. It will soon see the end of Omicron. And uh, we can all go about our business. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm misquoting Star Wars liberally here. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but if, if offence, of course, do conspire to make us postpone or rearrange the show, then fear not. Your tickets will be transferable or refundable should you be un unable to make the new date. So there you go. If you are looking for a good Christmas present to buy someone uh, and you're not quite sure they're film geeky, they're into this podcast, that might be a good present for them or it might be a good present for you to request yourself. Uh, but yes, do come on in. The water is lovely. Kingsplace.co.uk. If you've ever been to one of our live shows, you know that they are much fun. So please do come along. I am very excited to come along and do episode 500 and to apparently lead a quiz team. <laughs> the, the Thanos was right or whatever it is. Oh, oh, really god. oh my god. <laughs> it will be snapping at each other West Side Story style across the kind of divide. It's going to be great. Yeah. I, I haven't quite figured out all the details for that or indeed anything else for the day. But uh, my understanding is Zoe uh, from King's Place, who is wonderful and, and helps us facilitate all these events. She says we can have buzzers. Oh my god. Give so, me a buzzer. No, I think don't James, give him a buzzer. No, I think James Dyer with a buzzer oh. is a terrible thing. Can it's we like choose the sound that it makes? Because I want mine to go, I am inevitable. Every time I press <laughs> it, that would be amazing. Make it happen. I, I, I'm, I, you know what? It's really weird. I'm busy that day. It's, I've just discovered. What a shame. Oh, well. So sad. Bye bye. Anyway, my buzzer is going to say Molly's Game is a three-star film. If you keep oh that up. Oh, my God. So. That's God. fighting talk. Can that I have a buzzer that talk. says Rise of Skywalker is good? I want that buzzer. <laughs> no, that's ridiculous. No ben. such Come buzzer on. exists, Ben. <laughs> I will make one. <laughs> I don't think it works that way, Ben. I think they just do a simple buzz or... <laughs> Funny, that's exactly what I heard when Ben just opened his mouth. So I don't, don't really know the difference. <laughs> that's the sound of the chainsaw in the, in the room next door. Uh, that's what that is. Um... 
Any of you ever gone to town in the buzzer before? Is that, is that something is, that's... Is that young person slang for something? I don't understand. Good I don't Lord. know. I don't know. You take it how you want, James. Gone to town on the buzzer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I go out on the buzzer all the time. What are you talking about? <laughs> well. Wow. <laughs> okay. It's uh, not something you usually talk about, it, but yeah. uh, it makes company a bit sure. James, have we ever talked about the time we saw porn together? Do you know what's really, really funny? I swear to God, this is not a lie. I was literally thinking about that yesterday. <laughs> I, in no word context. of a lie. In no word of a lie. I was thinking about that yesterday. It's so, it's so, so bizarre. Genuinely, and I was in bed at the time, but I need to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> were you, were you, were you going was, to town on a buzzer, by the chance? I was going to town on a buzzer. I was falling asleep. And for some reason, I remembered that thing. And I remember the thing that struck in my head, the thing that I was remembering is, is to tell that it was porn, other than the fact that they started fucking in the back of a police van. But but the tell was that the, the, the senior officer in the police surveillance unit in the surveillance van had sort of lustrous, long flowing kind of cock rock hair. And I was like, that, that surely is not a regulation haircut. You are not yeah. a real police officer. Wait a second. Why is he getting his cock out? Oh my God, that's not a truncheon. And then it all went downhill from What's- there. What is happening? Yeah, James, James likes to start his stories at the end without yeah. giving any context. He calls it a temporal pincer movement, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. Oh god. He'll be telling he'll start he'll tell the beginning of the story okay, I next week. Okay, so Chris and I were in Barcelona, uh, Barcelona on an Empire holiday and we were sharing a room <laughs> and we turned on the television and there was what appeared to be at first glance a police procedural playing mm-hmm. on the screen whereby mm-hmm. two police officers, one male, one female, were in the back of a surveillance van. Yeah. Conducting what I can only assume was a very important sting operation. It was quite a thorough investigation, it was as I a remember. Very thorough investigation, and then uh, uh, the gentleman with the long hair who was looking a bit suspicious. Well, no, Jimbo, if you remember, if you remember, oh god, we were flicking through the channels, and it was quite late at night in Barcelona, <laughs> and and I think we would go, we'd gone. Let's watch a bit of Spanish TV and see how how weird it is. So we started watching Spanish TV. This is like two thousand and five. I want to say two thousand and five. And we're flicking through the channels, and it's like, channel, okay, flick, watch 10 seconds, okay, don't understand this. Is there a Spanish master chef? No, okay, let's move on. <laughs> and we got to the back of the, we, we got to, get in the back of the van! And we got to the uh, the police station, the police procedural thing, and you were about to flick on with remote control, <laughs> and I went, stop, it's porn. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember? <laughs> Surely you should have been like, skip on, it's porn. I don't want to watch this with you. That's weird. <laughs> you, you were like, what? I went, I tell you that is porn. I, I, I don't ask me how I know. It was the hair. It was definitely it was the, hair. the hair. They were far too attractive to be police people. <laughs> the channel was called Bab Station. <laughs> and, uh, and we watched it for a second and then it, it turned into full-blown porn. And then we both realized we were like, oh God, this is bad. So like, flick, quick, turn off the channel, turn off the channel. Uh, but there you go. Not, nothing happened. Nothing untoward happened, uh, you know, but it was it was just two, two, two men, two full-grown men. <laughs> men watching Spanish porn. <laughs> Guys and being And why can't dudes. a heterosexual guy tell a heterosexual guy that he thinks they should watch some porn together, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, 100%. Yeah. Why not? Why not? Why not? Why I was thinking about that in bed last night, however it makes a mystery. That's a genuine thing that was happening. <laughs> I think it was exactly uh, that. I was trying to work out what it was that had clued us in. Because I realised, I remember distinctly, I don't remember a lot of it, but I do remember us realising it was porn before it was evidently porn. But maybe it was yes. your keen sixth sense for <laughs> pornography. That, oh, it wasn't a sixth it. sense. He'd seen the film before, clearly. I know this one. He probably has it, you know. <laughs> I'd never reached that bit before. I was usually asleep by that point. Oh, God. Anyway, so shall we have a listener question? Please, God, yes, God. please. 
I also vote yes, just to be clear. Uh, let's have a listener question. What is a listener question? I genuinely have uh, forgotten what it was, and I can't find it uh, on the thing I sent to you guys. So we're, we're doing well. I've got it. I found it. Do you have who it's from? Because I didn't have who it was from last week, and it, uh, the last week's question was from Gunner F. Gunner F was the person who sent in last week's question about saying Merry Christmas in movies. Uh, Benjamin, Yes, this one it? comes from at Stephen Lally. Uh, taking everything into account, t- talking setting, weather, food, guests and gifts, which Christmas Day gathering from a film would everyone most like to attend and least like to attend? Uh, and they say, Kate Winslet's cottage in the holiday would be hard to resist, and we've all I wanted to wake up in that NYC hotel suite at the end of Home Alone 2, right? Except I have never seen Home Alone 2. Yeah, yeah, which is, I mean, okay, I think... I need some definitions here. Are we talking that the people in the film would be there too? Because, for example, I actually don't think I want to spend Christmas with the McAllisters. They seem hmm. like a lot, you know. So while that suite in the plaza looks amazing and the tree is is just about up to my standards, a little under decorated, but it's fine. And and there's a decent array of presents. I, you know, I I don't want to be with them for Christmas. I don't think. Oh, they're awful people. Awful people. people, right? So, so that that would be a little bit of a of a downer for that one. Um, in the holiday, technically, that's a New Year's party when they actually huh. get together in her cottage. I'm just saying. So, <laughs> you know, does that count? It does. You know, no, absolutely not. We're oh, not allowed outrageous, to. Outrageous. We're, not, we're not allowed to count the apartment uh, either. In that regard, uh, also, I'm going to I'm going to extend the parameters of the question a little bit. Okay. So not beyond Christmas, but the question is Christmas Day gatherings. I'm going to bring it forward and just say Christmas party in general. Okay. Like, would you want to go to the office Christmas party? Not um, <laughs> the conservatives, but the office Christmas party from office Christmas party, which seems like a rambunctious pile of fun. I, I quite mean, liked that film. I, I, I really did. I quite not, liked it. It's not, I don't not remember terrible. anything about it. No. I quite liked it. I don't know that it would be terribly safe. I feel like, you know, you're trying to enjoy yourself and then there's people like falling off balconies and, and screaming downstairs towards you. You know, I, I feel like that would be kind of a stressful Christmas party to be at. The gathering, and just mm-hmm. to be really stereotypical, the gathering at George Bailey's house in It's a Wonderful Life. That's a knees up. Everybody's singing. Everybody's happy. There's a real sense of community, a real sense of belonging. That would be nice. That would be warm and cosy and fuzzy. There's loads of money on the table. Okay, but I don't think you're supposed to be like lifting that. You know, I think if there is any leftover, it's definitely for widows and orphans and such. You say that, but uh, that would get a young hands grouper very, very interested. Speaking of which, that's all I'm saying. Here we go. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) That's an unmissable festive event. I think we can all agree. Whatever party James is turning up as, uh, it's in a hands grouper capacity. (laughs) He will crash the party, (laughs) take it over. I don't see how that's yeah. a party. I think that's a tremendous one. The the one on Die Hard before Hans Gruber and his guys show okay, up, okay. of course. Yeah. All right. So if you look at it, it's a very it's a very elegant party. It's a very well to do party. There are canapes. Ellis has brought enough cocaine to kill a small horse, so you know. There's <laughs> a lot of festive snow in the air. I'm sorry, like our Christmas parties are full of festive snow of that sort. It's more no, like, ooh, really not. Um, how many gold coins can we shovel into our minds? <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I was texting James and Nick the other day because I have pictures on my phone of every Christmas party we've ever done. And there's just a variety of pictures uh, in which me and Nick and James look like we want to die at these parties. <laughs> 
Die Hard's got a great party. You know, like yeah, as you say, Ellis is off doing his thing. That that couple feel very um, relaxed and uninhibited, and they go they off do. to enjoy themselves uh, in in one of the rooms in the in the biblical fashion. Uh, but you know, it's got a string quartet. Mm. Classic. I've never seen that before. They're very classy. They're really classy. Joined up. It's got a beautiful backdrop. You have you know you have Takagi going around. You know it's it's all lovely. It's a lovely lovely party. So I w- I would go for that one. That's okay. too fancy for me. I wouldn't feel comfortable in that situation. Helen said the words warm and fuzzy, and in every sense, there is no <laughs> Christmas warmer or fuzzier than the Muppet Christmas Carol, Christmas Day, obviously after Scrooge has had his conversion and, and brings the big turkey, and you could sit there with, with, with Kermit, Bob Cratchit, and little tiny Tim, Aww. and Aww. just have a lovely Christmas dinner together. That would be the wonderful, most wonderful thing I can imagine. Oh, I want that so much. Oh, lovely tiny Tim. Oh, speaking of like cute Christmases, uh, the one in Lego Star Wars Holiday Special, cannot stress enough Lego (laughs) Star Wars Holiday Special, the (laughs) Life Day party in that is actually kind of a rager in the end. You know, the tip-yip looks a little overdone. I'm not sure that cooking it in the engine exhaust was the super best idea. But but generally speaking, you know, it's going to be lit. Just make sure no Wookiees tear your arm off. Yeah, Max Rebo is there. Max Rebo, Max come Rebo. on, guys. Yeah. Oh, I do love a bit of Max Rebo. Uh, speaking of. <laughs> really? Yeah. Roasting on an open fire? <laughs> no, because um, it's the tip yep, isn't it? That's, that's traditional. Oh, uh, okay. I got you. Uh, what about the, um, the Christmas party? Uh, speaking of bangers and things that are lit to use, Helen, who appears to have morphed into some sort of TikToker <laughs> whilst we weren't looking. What about the one, the Nutcracker Ball in The Night Before? Yeah, I watched that the other day for the first time and I had a really good time with it. I thought that was actually pretty fun. It got quite stinky reviews when it first came yeah. out uh, and it looked like yeah, a good, good time. Fun. And yeah, it has it a magic Michael Shannon, which it if you're does. looking for things on your Christmas party <laughs> list, magic Michael Shannon is way up there. Is he the original magic Mike? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would love be. to see magic Mike, but with Michael Shannon just CG'd badly in place of Chani Tatum. That'd be tremendous. <laughs> I'm not sure it's a Christmas party unless someone's eating a whole smoked salmon through a scraggly beard. So I'm going to throw the Duke's Christmas party in there, which are, of course, gate crashed by Winthorpe with gun. Uh, and then he walks away with the salmon, as we all do when we leave a Christmas party. So Yeah, we should mention that this is Dan Aykroyd in Trading Places. That bit where he has the salmon and a beard is pretty gross. <laughs> oh, it's so nice. Yeah, which is, which is ironic because like a bit of smoked salmon on some wheat and bread with a bit of butter. Oh. Can't be. Oh, oh, that's Christmas. Lovely right bit there. of wheat and bread. That'd be Four. that'd be tremendous. Yeah. Batman returns. Yes. Oh my god. Yes. yes. Mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it. And a kiss can be deadlier if you mean it. Hey. Ask can penguins when they've got rockets strapped to their backs. <laughs> yeah, well, I've been telling you guys for years, penguins yeah. not to be trusted. So yeah. they'll there fuck you go. But yeah, that's that's a hell of a party. That's a really good one. Are there any parties in Iron Man three? I know there's a big bridge in Iron Man two, but that's not a Christmas party. No, I don't like that party. Mm. So no, I, don't, I, I refuse depressing. to attend. Mm. Uh, is there a Christmas party in Iron Man 3? No, there Not isn't because really. okay. it all gets okay. underway. But if you're going to go into Shane Black territory, which we are with, Certainly. Uh, with Iron Man 3, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang has that weird kind of yes. almost Christmassy sex party, doesn't it? Where where RDJ goes along and people are being very, very weird and Corbin Burns and Sarah and 
you know, of course, Michelle Monaghan in her Christmassy outfit. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. That's a that's a good old Christmas party. Because obviously Shane Black's got his Christmas movie reputation, but I can't think of too many Christmas parties okay. in a Shane Black movie. I don't yeah. think there's a Christmas party necessarily in Lethal Weapon. I don't think there's one, weirdly, in The Long Kiss Goodnight, which is the most Christmassy of all of his, all of his movies. There's a Christmas sort of like Christmas event. parade. Yeah, yeah. A Christmas parade. Yeah. It's a crash. Yeah. But it's rubbish. Oh, harsh. I mean, it's not it bad, is. bad. It's Sweet rubbish. Kid. She gets to ride on a reindeer drawn float, float thing. thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Come on. All right. All right. I'm trying to think of dinners, you know, actual sit down formal dinners. So obviously uh, Christmas vacation. Oh, yes. Um, but but the turkey alone, I mean, even if the sides are good, that turkey is so appalling that I'm, I'm not sure we can say we'd want to be there. That might be a bad one to be at, in fact. I found the heart. <laughs> oh god <laughs> surely the ultimate christmas dinner to mention my go-to one whenever we talk about christmasy stuff it has to be christmas at hogwarts the the christmas roast mm, in yeah, the great hall yeah. like yeah. a never-ending food mountains of turkey and all the trimmings and all the good stuff i mean that is got to be one of the sort of coziest christmases you could possibly have especially if you get a molly weasley jumper in there but it's the dinner that would really get me can you imagine can you imagine eating that much food and how just conked out you'd feel afterwards. And you sit by the fire in the common room, fall asleep, wake up at 3am and drag yourself to bed. That's the magic of Christmas. Poster bed. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. It, is, it is super Christmassy looking. I tell you what, also in a sort of slightly kiddie film, uh, the party that Morgan Freeman's character throws mm-hmm. in uh, the... Shawshank. N- <laughs> no, I'm trying to remember the exact the exact name of the film, but it's the the Nutcracker Legend of the Four Realms or something. What was it? Oh, something yes, like yes, that. Yes, yeah. yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. The, the Nutcracker film from a couple of years ago. Keira Knightley is the Sugar Plum mm. Fairy. It's a lot better than you think it's going to be. That's all I can tell you. It's a lot better than you think it's going to be. But but Morgan Freeman's party is off the charts great looking and it's got the whole big ballroom side of things it's got amazing decorations it's got great looking food it's got this bit where all the kids have to follow like a string strung through the whole house and at the end of the string there'll be a present but it's like a it's got a bit of a game element to it oh my god it looks amazing yeah (laughs) all right i might check that one out any others before we wrap this bad boy up in lovely christmassy paper and put a lovely bow on it and say goodbye no Brilliant. Thanks, Jimbo. <laughs> Thanks. You're welcome. You had Die Hard in your list, and once you ticked it off, you were that done. That's it. I'm done. <laughs> I'm finished. Look, if we want to talk about Timothy Oliphant wearing nothing but a Santa hat and goat, then, you know, Helen, fill your boots. But other than that, I think, you know, we're done. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll leave that to my alternative. It's porn. <laughs> it's porn. <laughs> it's porn. Chris can Absolutely tell he porn. has a finely honed sense. <laughs> It's all about the hair, and he does have great hair. Oh, he does have great hair, but no, that is a, that is absolutely one hundred percent porn, and uh, yeah, maybe not the best party in the world. You know, well, the illegal substances and such. Of course, we don't approve. I'm trying yes. to think as well. I mean, there there was that uh, that Christmas party in Love Actually. Do we allow that credit for the chance to cop off with Rodrigo <sighs> Santoro, or do we condemn it for Alan Rickman kind of cheating on his wife, at least emotionally? We condemn it know. because it's in Love Actually. And we condemn everything <laughs> that's also, in the That's not a party you wanted to attend because who's the employee? Is it Kevin? Who's the employee who's fondling everyone's breasts? Kevin. It's Kevin. Kevin is yeah, because Kevin is yeah. at that party. Yeah, and I think true. for that reason alone, no one else should go. Anything else? Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, The Christmas oh. Chronicles, Christmas Chronicles 2. Christmas Chronicles, because then if Little Steven's band is playing and Santa is singing, then that is an excellent thing. 
Yeah, but then the Christmas party to get to that Santa singing, you either have to be in jail or at, stuck at an airport. So, you know, is it worth it? It's a bit of a question mark for me with those two. Yeah, I'm not sure. Jingle Jangle has some good parties at the end. Spoiler. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a lot <laughs> of those. A spoiler. I mean, <laughs> hey, it could have ended on a diner. You don't know. Okay. Um, Never but- take down us at Christmas. <laughs> but I, I don't I think a lot of these films um, you know they haven't got the budget for the really big parties that um, you want at this time of year What about Gremlins? Would you consider the Gremlins that'll get together at the end or <laughs> sort of kind of they're hooly they're a bit of hootenanny if you will is that or last New Year's obviously is that is that you know when we're in the cinema watching Snow White and having a great time or at the bar they're in the pub you know, terrorising Phoebe Cates. Is that a Christmas party? I'm going to say it is. I have been in cinema audiences that have been less civilised than the Gremlins watching uh, Snow White in that film. I genuinely want to watch Spider-Man No Way Home with some Gremlins. (laughs) That would be very fun. I should get those Gremlins on Disneyversity, available on all good podcast apps now. Oh my God. Yum, yum. Well, I mean, obviously for more on Christmas parties, you want to go to Bar Humbug, available on all good (gasps) podcast apps. (laughs) Yum, yum. I know this would be my turn to jump in and plug the Pilot TV Pilot. podcast, but I'm above that kind of thing and would Pilot. never do that. Pilot TV. <laughs> no, you know what, Jimbo? I'm going to allow you one Christmassy plug for the Pilot TV podcast. Go on, have at it. Oh, so tempting. Well, we'll be covering all the Christmas TV, Chris, and it will be up on Monday, which will be very exciting. In fact, I'm trying to work out whether it, Boyd is, lam- is, is lobbying to do another one between Christmas and New Year because he says that's when all the best TV is coming out no. and I don't want to do it. So no, we, we'll see where that falls. Break. That's what I said. But Boyd knows he doesn't know pity or remorse and he absolutely will not stop until <laughs> I am dead. <laughs> He's been sent from the future to torment me on that podcast. Chris... I can't believe the phrase one Christmassy plug didn't set your porn alarms tingling. <laughs> I, 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 I'm so sorry. I exhausted myself by going to town on a buzzer and uh, I, yeah. I, I, I missed a Christmassy plug. <laughs> my word. I'm slipping clearly in my old age. Uh, all right. Anyway, that is it for the listener question section. Uh, if you want to send in any more questions for us, just in case we did an impromptu episode uh, next week, but didn't officially number it because that would fuck up the, uh, the run-up to episode 500 and they want those questions to be Christmas movie related then have at it slide into my DMs I'm at Chris Hewitt on Twitter or just reply to any of my tweets once you've stopped laughing of course time now for a guest or should I say guests because next week next Wednesday the 22nd of December marks the return of two characters I did not think we would see return on the big screen Neo and Trinity Yes, indeed, folks, The Matrix is back after an absence of some 18 years. It's been 18 years since The Matrix Revolutions seemed to bring the story of Neo and Trinity to an end. But no, director Lana Wachowski is back next week with The Matrix Resurrections, and she's brought two very familiar faces with her, Keanu Reeves and Carrie and Moss. They don't need any more introduction than that, do they, surely? Two of the most iconic characters and one of the most iconic yeah. franchises of all time, played by two iconic actors, and now they're back, back, back. And um, let's just say that I spoke to them on Zoom last week. This interview is spoiler-free to a large extent. Don't worry, we're not doing a spoiler-special interview. I have seen the film. I cannot discuss it, but we do discuss certain thematic elements that play 
within the movie. So there may be, maybe you want to skip it until you've seen The Matrix Resurrections. Maybe you just want to dive right in because we talk around stuff in a very, very vague way. But nevertheless, I had a lot of fun talking to Keanu and Carrie Ann. And hopefully you guys will do too. Here's Christmas present number one. Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the stars of The Matrix Resurrections, Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss. How the devil are you both? We're doing good. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't mean to speak for you, No, Carrie. I, I appreciate it. No, please I, do. I jumped in there and I spoke for you. I love it. I'm doing all right. We're, we're doing great. Okay, that's good. Because I have to say... I never expected to say those words, you know, the, about a new Matrix movie. And I imagine you didn't expect to hear them. Yeah, that's that is true. Um, I had heard over the years that Warner Brothers, who uh, financed and distributed uh, the Matrix trilogy, was considering uh, making another Matrix film. And then I would always go, well, are the Wachowskis involved? And then it would be no. And I would say, well, that's never going to happen. <laughs> but then it started to get closer and closer. And then I was like, hmm, still not going to happen. And then a year, a couple went by. And then uh, I got a, a, a text call from Lana Wachowski. And then she was saying that she was considering and thinking about doing another um uh matrix film and i was like what <laughs> and then she said yes but there were a lot of things she wanted to consider first you know just the writing the situation yeah and she was she kind of went step by step but i i was really happy to that she invited me and yeah and i was looking forward to it happening right, carry on what about yourself at what point did you get that call i don't remember exactly when but um i got a text from lana and then we talked on the phone and we caught up a little tiny bit. And then she shared with me that she had written this script and why she had written it and that there was a possibility we would do it. And was I interested, you know, would I want to be part of it? And I was like, of course, I'm so excited. <laughs> and, uh, and then it happened quite quickly, actually. It feels like it went quite quickly. It feels from the outside looking in that suddenly there was an announcement that there was a new Matrix movie, and then there were shots of you guys on set on a motorbike, and that's the moment for me when it began to feel real, like this thing is really happening. Because it, you know, when you hear about a new movie, it feels very abstract. Then suddenly you see you guys as Neo and Trinity, and it's like, oh my god, <laughs> there they it's are! It's happening! <laughs> it's happening! So was there a moment for the both of you because? You know, not to get too much into the movie, but it's it's a movie that at times goes out of its way to feel deliberately not like a Matrix movie. And then there are times when it does. So at what point did it feel like a Matrix movie for the both of you? Um, I don't know. When I, In terms of the text, I always felt like I was in a Matrix film. It struck me how much more humor there was in the, in the, in the text and seeing the film. It was really, I thought, delightful, a nice kind of added ingredient to the feast, you know, just some more humor. Uh, and also kind of Lana Wachowski was also kind of making fun of the Matrix as well, you know, which I thought was great. Was there a moment particularly, I mean, when it was the two of you? Because Keanu, a lot of your scenes are with actors who are new to the franchise. But Carrie-Anne, a lot of your scenes are specifically with Keanu. So were those moments for you when you felt like, oh, this is it. I'm this is this is Matrix Four. 
Oh, I'm sorry. You were asking what were the moments that made you feel like we're in the matrix? Yeah. I think the moment that we started training (laughs) in the dojo, the the first day of training, Uh uh, which we did for probably a couple months before we started shooting the first day of training, I felt like I was back in the matrix because so much of the, you know, so much of the preparation for the first three movies, it all started in a dojo. And Mm. So immediately being there with Keanu, it, it, it was just surreal. We're back and we're doing this again. So I definitely felt it right away through that, through that training of, 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 tra- of the process of training, mm. actually. Was it all still stored up here? The, the muscle memory? Did it all kick in right away? No, no, it <laughs> took time. <laughs> it took time, but it was fun. And um it was the kinds of challenges that Lana asks of us in all of the movies. It, it, it makes you, it makes you just step into more of yourself. That's what I always loved about the movies. I was just always facing something that was um, maybe, maybe an obstacle in myself, whether it was physically an obstacle or whether it was mentally an obstacle. Mm. And to me, that's what makes life interesting in general, beyond movies is, you know, can I overcome this obstacle? And with the movies, the answer is always, yes, I can. And how am I going to get there? I don't know, but I'm going to figure it out. And of course, you have a lot of support by people, other people that are helping you get there. But I love that part of it. And uh, what sort of conversations did the two of you have whenever this first began to hover on the horizon, did you call each other and go, are we, are we going to do this? Did you have conversations? Cause there are conversations in the movie without getting too spoilerific about it. There are meta conversations as you hinted at Keanu about, you know, revisiting the matrix and whether going back and doing another matrix is a good idea, which is a really funny concept in the movie itself. Did you have conversations like that with, with Lana? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we really kind of connected when we had the reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, certainly going, you know, the early days in preparation, definitely asking her about questions about, you know, what it, I don't want to really kind of get into it. Of course. You know, going through the uh, script process that she went through, she was gracious enough to involve me with a couple of drafts before the shooting draft. So, yeah, I think for us, it was really connecting mm-hmm. with the read-through. What was that read-through like? What was that moment when you first got the script? Have you ever read a script with such trepidation? You know, turning the page going, <laughs> oh. <laughs> please, It was please. exciting. Yeah, yeah. Was, that her do- was that her residence with her and Karen? And Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. I mean, every, you know, I, I don't know. I've never done a read-through where I haven't read it first. Mm. So to sit at the table and and to that that was interesting and I think to be reading it for the first time and being watched while reading it for the first time, um, you know, with is um, Wachowskian. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, right? Wachowskian. <laughs> and that that kind of feeds into the movie, though, doesn't it? Because there's such a and again, I, can't, I, I know what you mean. It's tough to talk about this movie without really talking about this movie. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a tough one. But one of the things I love about it is how 
in conversation with the previous three movies, it is. Right down to, I think we can probably say, right down to, you know, we see clips and glimpses from the three previous Matrix movies. Um, And that in particular, I think, really applies to the relationship between Neo and Trinity in this movie. Everything that those characters do, every conversation they have is loaded with weight and the meaning of what went before. And you must have got a sense of that, a sense of that significance and that occasion as you were as you were doing those scenes and as you were doing things like like the read through is that something that the both of you felt yeah the journey that uh, thomas anderson takes with confronting the character still feels like something's not quite right in his reality mm. so he's bringing the past with him so this idea of what had happened I mean, it's so crazy because we're we're making a film that we had made 20 years ago with a with a film that's confronting the idea of the past, but being in the present. And what's your relationship to that? Is memory fiction? Is reality turned into a memory? Is fiction? What the heck's going? How do you feel about it? And how do you feel about what the world is and your place in it? And oh my gosh. It's really fun. I mean, as an actor, it's really fun to be able to like be in the moment of trying to think of those things and react to them and feel them. You know, it's yeah. it's grief. It's I don't know. It's also just lives in us mm. in a way because of our history and because of the the making of those other movies. Like when I watch the movie and you see those scenes where Lana so craftically uh, craft craftically. Instead of working with her, with her amazing craft, with her amazing ability to bring in all those pieces of the, of the past that inform the scene. And at the same time, you look at these two characters and if you've watched, you know, if you have a, if you have a, a relationship with the matrix, which a lot of, a lot of people do. But the film works if you haven't. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, But it's like, I don't know. I just feel like, it all lives in there. It just lives in them. Yeah. It's two characters in a way. Yeah. That um and then with the with the you know the flashbacks being put in there so well it it it, it moved me. It it brought me. It was interesting to be seeing these two characters sitting across from each other having this conversation, listening to what they're saying and at the same time absolutely remembering the past. Like yeah. just they were swim the the past and the present just happening all at the same time. Um, that was really amazing to watch. Did you both go back and revisit the previous movies before you you filmed this? I did. I did too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which is another level itself. So now you're watching. <laughs> so now you're watching your fictional past to try and understand your reality present. <laughs> going to tell another fiction that's actually going to be your next reality. And all cool. of that is transposing to the audience who's watching it. I need a nap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was amazed, amazed watching the other, the, the three other movies and you know, how much of it is, is, you know, I remember like in every scene, I remembered that day. More, more than I remember the scenes, which is interesting. Oh yeah, I remember on that day this happened. Or you know, movies are so interesting when you when you make them because they hold 
a time in your life too. Yeah. Again, because from the outside looking in, we just see the movie. But you guys were thinking, well, I was in, we were in Australia at that point, and I was doing this, and you know, yeah, and I had, right. I had a life. But if you're familiar with the trilogy, and especially if you had seen them when you were younger, mm-hmm. you are having the same experience, right? Yep. Oh my God, who was I when I first saw The Matrix? Who did I see it with? (laughs) And then who did I see it with? And then, wait, I didn't see that one on the beach. Wait, what did I do that? What happened? Who was I? And now here I am. Gosh, look at my life over the past 18 years. What choices (laughs) did I make? How did I, how did that even impact? Who was that person? Who am I now? What's going on? (laughs) All we need is love. Listen, Keanu, if we start interrogating my choices over the last 18 years, we could be here all all day. I'm filled with regrets. We could learn from you, sir. We could learn from you. (laughs) Nobody is going to learn anything from me anytime soon. But there's, there's, you've both talked about and, and and hinted that the impact that the Matrix has had in pop culture. I mean, you know, there's so many so many phrases glitch in the Matrix and and red pilled over the last couple of years in particular has become very significant. Um, Follow the white rabbit. Wake up, Neo. Wake up. Peace. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there, there's a sense there's a sense in this movie that there's both Neo and Trinity are are hero worshipped, and again, that's that that meta layer about how the Matrix is hero worshipped as well, but. You know, in your everyday lives, is that something that you you encountered? You encounter the Matrix in a, in a in your everyday day to day lives, whether it's a quote or whether it's a concept. It's something that you can't escape in a, in a way, I guess. <laughs> I think I definitely do, and it's always. I have a lot of separation from actually. I have an interesting relationship to the Matrix, in that I can I I feel the movies without myself being in it. I have a relationship to the movies as the impact of the movies for me personally, that doesn't have anything to do with being in the movie. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. Um, And that's quite interesting to have that actually. I've never really thought about it. Um, But I, I, I constantly think about like, how are the ways that I am um, defined by ideas or by labels or my consciousness or my perception of things. And, and I will reflect that back to the concepts in the, in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wonder if it's odd <laughs> because I'm in them, but I, my, I have a very true relationship with the movies as art and, and what the movies were talking about. I'm interested in those conversations. Mm. Can I do the same for you? What's your relationship like with, with the movies? I mean, once in a while I'll, I'll, meet people who um share you know their experiences with the the films for the most part pretty positive Mm -hmm. uh, which is always great to hear i mean it's cool i mean i'm really grateful to be a part of a work of art that Mm -hmm. has affected so many people positively Mm -hmm. and um and then once in a while i've had you know some of my friends who've had kids it's like have they watched the matrix yet and they're like not yet <laughs> and then um but now they have you know so i've met some of my friends kids who have watched the matrix which is really cool <laughs> um and yeah and definitely you know in the vernacular of the culture um you know it's cool and 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 of course you have, you know, talking about this no- this notion of being in conversation with your past and revisiting characters from the past. You played Ted again 
recently and Bill and Ted face face the music. So Ted Theodore Logan. Absolutely. <laughs> so are you are is this is this part of uh, a sort of tour going back into the past and and carry on is it you know are you now inspired by this movie to to do the same and look back at characters you may you may have played once before and think you know what i'd like to see what they're up to now yeah i mean to to it was definitely uh been a um some new as lou reed would say new sensations you know i i yeah i did uh face the music which was the third bill and ted film Mm-hmm. And that was 30 years later, mm-hmm. um, which went, then went into The Matrix, which was, let's just call it 20 years later. <laughs> um, what's 10 years? 2010. I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I can only say it's been, yeah, new sensations, uh, yeah. but grateful for it. I mean, it's. It's cool to be able to have these characters and to continue to tell stories about them. Yeah, go back and work with the people. That's so wonderful to yes. to revisit those relationships and yeah. those creative partnerships. Yeah. Yeah, I can't really imagine. I don't know if I could imagine going back. I don't know with any of the things. I, it hasn't crossed my mind, but it didn't cross my mind about this one either. So, yeah, I, you know, yeah. So okay. I like when life surprises me. Absolutely. Well, I've got to let you guys go, but uh, I, mu- I must ask, is is this it? Or we, or, or, do you think there might be more Matrix in the pipeline for you both? The Matrix Resurrections, Resurrections, uh, down the line. <laughs> That's another one. <laughs> Redux Resurrect, Re- Resurrections Redux. Oh, I like Start that. I like that. What was it? The Wachowski-fication, I think was the word you came up with earlier on. I think I like that. I think we should work that into a title somewhere down the line. wachowski yeah. yeah. That's um, it. That's it. Uh, I, I don't... I don't believe so. I, I think uh, my if I had to cast a ballot, no, not a ballot, a vote. No, um, I would say that Lana would not do another major. We thought that about this one too. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> but I'm there if it's there. If, if, Let if, life surprise us. Right? If she invites us again. I'm, I'm sorry, I spoke for you again. No, I love yeah. it. I love it. If she it. invites me, I'm in. Well, we began with the Royal We. We ended with the Royal We. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you both. Thanks very much indeed for your time, Keanu and Carrie Ann. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So that was Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss. We will be reviewing The Matrix Resurrections on a future episode of the Empire Podcast, which may or may not be a regular numbered episode, because if we did a regular numbered episode next week, it would fuck up the run up to episode 500, as I've already said. So we cannot review it this week. We'll be reviewing it. Maybe next week? We shall see if Santa is very good to you boys and girls at home. Uh, Anyway, time now for movie news. What's been happening? Trailers. More trailers. All of them. Trailers everywhere, all at once. Where should we start? Well, I think Ben's just set it up. (laughs) I'm trying to remember the official name of the film. Uh, Everything, everywhere, all all the time, all at once, all the time. Everything, everywhere, all the time. Which... uh, is maybe now my most anticipated multiverse movie heading into 2022. What? I know, in the year that Multiverse of Madness and The Flash and all of this stuff is happening. Into the into the Spider-Verse. Into the, or Across, across the, Spider-verse, the Spider-Verse, part one. Yeah. All of these amazing multiverse movies. Uh, and then, in swoop, The Daniels, who you will 
probably remember about five years ago gave us the truly batshit insane but incredibly wonderful and weirdly beautiful Swiss Army Man, the Daniel Radcliffe farting corpse movie. Uh, the, the two Daniels behind that film are back with a new sort of sci-fi action adventure sort of film with Michelle Yeoh playing multiple versions of the same character across many universes uh, who each have their own kind of lives and, and their own skill sets and abilities and they can tap into all the other abilities. It's basically like Sense8. It's Sense8 with Michelle Yeoh mm. by the Daniels with Jamie Lee Curtis <laughs> it looks mind-blowing. There are googly mm. eyes everywhere. There is a shot of two googly eyes on a rock, and I'm obsessed with that shot. <laughs> it's the thing I'm going to be thinking about as we head into 2022. Googly eyes? Googly eyes? Yeah. Yeah. This looks tremendous. It looks wild. It you looks know, so amazing. Sometimes the trailer just sort of drops out of nowhere, and you look at it and you just go, holy shit, I never knew I wanted this this much. And that's before mm -hmm. the Bowie music kicked in. Oh, there's like a glorious montage of shots to, to some wonderful, wonderful Bowie. Feels like Bowie is everywhere in trailers these days. It just feels like a, a, a kind of nice, almost get out of jail free card for, for trailer makers. You know, like for your second half of your trailer, stick a bit of Bowie on, you'll be fine. Nothing wrong with that. No, especially not in this case when the trailer looks this good. Um, yeah, I I, I knew nothing about this in advance and it blew me away. I think I'm really excited actually to see all these different facets of Michelle Yeoh. Like some of these flashes we get of her are basically Michelle Yeoh movie star and some of them are, you know, Michelle Yeoh action star and some of them are her as a, you know, slightly downtrodden everyday person. And I, all of them look incredibly convincing. I'm super hyped. Just the wild, like, visual inventiveness and imagination mm. that came with Swiss Army Man, that looks like it's in full effect here. Like, we're, obviously, we're saying this is, they say the word multiverse in that trailer it is a multiverse story, and obviously we're getting lots of comic book incarnations of that at the moment. But this looks like a really different take on that idea Almost, I know some people have maybe thrown around Michel Gondry's style as a sort of touch point for this, but it looks kind of smaller in its own way, but also it still looks like a massive movie. You look at that trailer and think yeah. there is so much going on in here. Um, I, I just can't wait to see what all that ends up being. Yeah, I love Swiss Army Man so much, and then they just seem to drop off the radar for a little bit. And then so, you know, to see yesterday when everyone was really excited on our WhatsApp group about uh, the unbearable weight of massive talent the Nick Cage movie, which we'll discuss in a second. And then you weighed in seconds later, Ben, with, yeah, but look, if you think that's holy shit, look at this. The Daniels are back. And this just looks wonderful. Mm. And a great showcase uh, in, in Western cinema, certainly for Michelle Yeoh, who, you know, has done just a lot of supporting stuff recently. And here's a movie which is going, you know what? She's Michelle fucking Yeoh, and she mm -hmm. deserves this. So She yeah. was the best thing in Star Trek Discovery. She's the best thing on most things she's in. I mean, mm. yes, this is this is not yeah, this is not news. She was amazing in that. We did also mention the unbearable weight of massive talent, in which Nick Cage <laughs> plays Nick Cage, uh, movie star, who is hired for lots of money to go and hang out with one of his super fans, played by Pedro Pascal. This looks uh, barmy and weird and hilarious, and I can't yeah. wait. Cannot wait. Doesn't it? It's one of these things where you read the sort of logline for it, and you're like, oh, God, this is just going to be unwatchable. And also, Nick Cage's films are regularly unwatchable these days. However, hey, hey, no, no, come, come on. on. They're always watchable. I mean, are they? I think he and Bruce Willis really are populating the bottom shelf of, were there video stores now? The bottom shelves of all of them would just be Nick Cage and Bruce Willis movies. I would 
quibble with I don't, that. Yeah, I there was a period well. where he did a bit of that. But I think recently what we've seen is him making weird shit. And yes, some of it is weird shit made for 50p and some of it is weird shit made for hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, like Pig is genius. Pig is genius. Mandy, colour out of space, prisoners of the ghost Yeah, lands. exactly. Maybe it's just that he's so prolific, he does loads of shit and then has gold buried amidst the shit. Uh, I think this may be the latter, as in the gold. There's an element of that. I think with Bruce Willis, Bruce Willis's filmography is just depressing. Yeah. It's just depressing. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to speculate on the reasons why he's doing all these movies. It is what it is. That's his business. But it is depressing. He's, you know, he's torpedoing what was a great career, striking distance. Uh, the Color of Night. You know, these are the classic, these are the classic <laughs> Bruce Willis movies that people immediately think of. <laughs> What are you doing? Mortal thoughts. Color These are the night, movies. I understand why you like that because your sense for porn. It's porn. Obviously- it's porn. Yeah, you're- That's porn. That's Bruce Willis's penis. I was this is say, porn. It's Bruce Willis's penis taking up the entire frame. My spider sense is tingling. I'm sensing this is porn. It wasn't um, just my spider sense that was tingling. Oh no! Oh, God, you're Come Peter on. Tingle. Um, oh no! We seem to have got sidetracked. But the unbearable weight of massive talent. It looks really fucking funny. The yeah. trailer hangs together really well. Pascal looks like a brilliant foil for him. Yeah, I, I really, yeah. really, really desperately want to see this because it's batch. Also, it's worth noting that in all of the synopsis and stuff that came with this, Nick Cage is playing a character called Nick Cage, Nick Cage with a K. So they are trying to, he's playing himself, but I feel like there's a level in there of them having to also be like, this is Nick Cage playing a different Nick Cage, but who is the Nick Cage that you know because it's referencing all of his old movies? And at the same time, this universe, does that mean that because we've got Pedro Pascal, we've got Neil Patrick Harris, we've got Tiffany Haddish, do they not exist as actors in this universe? Is this... Maybe they just look like those people, like uh, Tess looks like Julia Roberts in the Oceans movies, you know? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Please never speak of that particular plot <laughs> sorry, device Sorry, I'm again. so sorry. Greatest twist in movie history. I don't know. Love it. Is it though? No, it's not. And I, I knew it wasn't even as I said it. But anyway, uh, yeah, this looks, this looks great. Uh, but speaking of unbearable weights of massive talents, Fantastic Beasts is back, folks. Uh, that, that, the sound of whooping. If you, were, if you were working at home recently and you heard whooping and cheering in the streets and you looked outside and people were just, there was some sort of uh, impromptu parade, it's because everyone is so excited about the return of Gr- Grindelwald. He's back. But no, 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 it's, it's the secrets of Dumbledore, though, isn't it? It's the secrets of Dumbledore, and yes, Grindelwald is back, but now he's Mads Mikkelsen? That is exciting. That is genuinely good. Yeah, that is good. We, I feel like we've talked many times on the podcast about all the things happening in the background of the franchise, which we are all very aware of, and I will probably just not go too deep into at the moment. Everything around this franchise aside, I've got to say, this trailer really worked for me. But did you not feel that this trailer just felt like an artificially constructed piece of damage control. Like, the whole thing felt designed to pluck very particular nostalgic strings to make you think, oh, hey, you know those two films that we made that weren't very good? Forget those, because remember Harry Potter? That was great. It is <laughs> you know I mean? doing that, like, and it oh, has points worked. Points to Hufflepuff. It's like, yeah. I mean, it worked. It worked. It, I'm not saying it wasn't effective. They're, but. they're flinging Hogwarts at you. You're back to Hogsmeade. Mm. You've got young Aberforth Dumbledore. You've got the Room of Requirement. Uh, you've got, yeah, them in the Great Hall. You've got Jacob Kowalski with a wand in the Great Hall. There's there's many things happening. That's, that, that's funny. But yeah. the, the thing is, 
what I think it's doing is giving you lots of like, hey, hey, Harry Potter stuff, Harry Potter stuff. But at the same time, the stuff that's teasing for what comes next with the Fantastic Beast characters is actually pretty exciting to me as well. One of the massive highlights uh, among the not great stuff in The Crimes of Grindelwald was Jude Law as Dumbledore. And he seems to have kind of an even greater focus here. Uh, there is more kind of fun beastie stuff where you've got uh, Newt Scamander and his brother Theseus uh, sort of doing a weird like wiggly dance for some tiny crabs. <laughs> Excited to see what the hell that's about. The escalation of the whole situation with Credence and the, the cliffhanger they left at the end of the last film, which is a big, juicy cliffhanger. Uh, there's a lot to resolve there, and you see him having a duel with Jude Law's Dumbledore. Like, there's a lot of stuff in there where it just feels like the last one genuinely was just treading water. It just it, it yeah. did not have a plot. It had revelations to unfold, but it did not have a plot really to get you there. And this one, there's a bit more of a sense of like what this is actually about, which is that Jude Law's Dumbledore is assembling a kind of oddbod ragtag crew of wizards and a muggle baker to try and take down Grindelwald. And that is that is enough. That is just a good hook for what this is. Um, and I feel like lots of the characters in that ragtag group they introduced maybe not in the most exciting way in the last film, but they are here, they are established, and now just go and do the fun magic stuff. Go and see the beasts, go and do the wizardry, go back to Hogwarts, go out into the world. As long as that is what actually happens this time. I think, you know, our our big issue with these films has been that after two films, we're essentially still where we wanted to be at the beginning of the first film with somebody putting a team together to take down a, th- a magical threat. That's essentially, you know, nothing has moved on. At the end of the second film, we were exactly where we were at the end of the first film, except now people had decided to work together a bit more. It it just feels a little all over the place. Uh, I, we're missing a character so far. Um, yes. I'm sure we're all desperately, yes. desperately aware of that, but Catherine Waterston doesn't seem to be in this movie. So that's she's, intriguing. She's in the movie. She's in the cast list. Catherine Waterston, Tina Goldstein, she's in... The synopsis, she is, or she's in the cast list, but we do not see a single frame of her in this trailer, which no, is so that's which is slightly yeah. strange. So there may be a revelations there, but look, I, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm weary of these films so far, but I am hmm. still hopeful that they will not suck and go somewhere. The the first film I really like it has a lot of charm to it. It does suffer from, on the one hand, trying to be a fun beasts movie that then sort of transmutes into something bigger than that. Yeah. But if if this one. I, I realise I maybe sound like I'm willing something to, to be good, but really I do think it's a bit of the X-Men apocalypse thing where it's like, yes, the last one was bad, but actually everything happening up to that point was for me pretty good. So if it can give the charm and the fun of the beastsy stuff from the first film and then the Harry Potteriness, that is a nice combo for me. If it can't, but I mean, the problem with the first film was it, and I don't want to relitigate all of that, but like the first film had fun beastie stuff that had nothing to do with what turned out to be the plot. The plot turned out to be about Grindelwald and that had nothing to do with any of the beast stuff. The beast stuff was completely sideways to that. And so there's been no sense of any, you know, if you, if you compare that to the Harry Potter films, the, they built, the, their whole thing was actually about... Voldemort. The the first film, Newt's entire story had nothing to do with Grindelwald until suddenly it did. So like this has a lot of work to do to actually 
marry the fun stuff, as you say, to its actual overarching plot, which has at no point so far been integrated to anything properly. Mm. So anyway, I am I am genuinely hopeful for this. I am genuinely very Christmas Eve about it. It could get good. It's unlikely but it though, isn't it? So far. <laughs> it hasn't so far. And and look, Mads Mickelson, fantastic. Good good people in the cast still. I just uh, mm, yeah. Mm, two films, guys. You mm. know, you're running out of third chances. I, I, I feel like this is a general feeling. I don't think this is, you know, cynical film journalists. I think there's a genuine feeling online, some of which may be motivated by other reasons connected to, you know, the, the wizarding world. But I think there's a general sense of weariness instead of excitement about this. And yeah, I think so. There is potential here, so I just you know would like them to deliver on some of it. I, I just feel God, I hope this so. is this is phoning it in the franchise. Um, sadly, uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I do wonder. I mean, if you start off, if you start off here, and the law of diminishing returns kicks in, where are we going to be by by five? Because they will make the, the you know they will make the five that they have promised slash threatened. And I'm I'm slightly worried about this. Although the you know, the trailer did look pretty, yeah, it looked like it had fun moments, as as Ben says. So you know, every day is Christmas Eve, uh, and especially here at Hogwarts. Uh, speaking of every day being Christmas Eve, let's talk very quickly about Operation Fortune Ruse de Guerre, which is the new Jason Statham Guy Ritchie movie, not to be confused with Wrath of Man, which is also the new Jason Statham Guy Ritchie <laughs> movie. Uh, but that's because it took pretty much a year to be released over here. It's now on Prime Video. Uh, and this looks like an absolute blast. Did anyone see the trailer? It looks like a ton of fun. It is a sort of kind of jaunty spy thriller with Jason Statham playing Orson Fortune, who is, who is a um, a devilish uh, hero who um, trucks and escapades and he uh, he hangs around with his team who include Aubrey Plaza providing quips and wisecracks and gunplay and uh, and they're trying to take down Hugh Grant who is using the same accent he used in The Gentleman but I love this kind of late stage Hugh Grant who's realised that he doesn't mm. have to sound like Hugh Grant in every movie and I credit Paddington too in that amazing sequence where Phoenix Buchanan tries on a whole bunch of different accents I credit Paddington mm. too with that uh, as I do you credit Paddington too with I most things I do credit Paddington too with most things it has to be said um but this looks like a ton of fun and they have to recruit the world's biggest movie star who is josh hartnett to try and take down this arms dealer who is played by hugh grant and it just looks like it could be a bit of a blast i thought wrath of man was really quite terrific actually and uh uh so it's good to see these guys flexing maybe a different set of muscles the thing I couldn't quite get my head around in this trailer is what the tone they're going for. Is this going to be like Guy, obviously Guy Ritchie doing the Guy Ritchie thing, but in like a family-ish, like 12 rated adventure, or is it pushing for that like harder edged Guy Ritchie thing? Because it felt like it had both of those elements in the trailer. Like it looks silly in a good way, silly and fun in the sense that Jason Statham's character is called Orson Fortune. That is uh, just wild. Uh, and it seems like it's having a lot of fun with the premise and with the ideas, uh, but at the same time leaning into, well, he can't help but lean into the geezery stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I felt a bit confused in this trailer of quite where it's trying to land on that front. It seemed pretty clear to me, which is that it's kind of breezy and irreverent and, and fun. I don't know how hard-edged it's going to be. I don't know whether it's going to be an R. Uh, necessarily, I know the gentleman was, and obviously Wrath of Man was, mm. but he he's proved with the Sherlock Holmes movies and um, that he can he can he can play in the sort of PG thirteen environment. Is Aubrey Plaza playing Janet Snakehole, or does she just look that way on the poster? Who's that? 
That's her uh, joke character in Parks and Rec. Oh, of course, right. yes. Uh, her femme fatale. Uh, she is playing a nice little twist on it. She's playing a very Aubrey Plaza-esque twist. So she she's, I guess, someone who's going to be commenting on the ludicrousness of the situation. <laughs> Yeah, it looks like a lot of fun. Uh, has there been right. any casting news or anything? Hollywood seems to be winding down for Christmas a little bit. I don't know that there's an awful lot to talk about. In terms of casting news, we didn't talk last week, did we, about Oppenheimer? No, we didn't. Your favourite filmmaker. Yeah, so there's there was a little bit of news, I think, after we recorded last week, that Florence Pugh, Rami Malek and Benny Safdie are joining uh, Christopher Nolan's film Oppenheimer. Um, so Killian Murphy is obviously the scientist himself, um, and they will be around him. So Pew is Jean Tatlock, who's a member of the Communist Party of the United States, who had an affair with Oppenheimer. Bit of a worry for the security services. Safdie is Edward Teller, a Hungarian physicist, um, known as the father of the hydrogen bomb, who also worked on the Manhattan Project. And Malik will also be playing AN Scientist. Um, so we already had uh, Emily Blunt as Oppenheimer's wife, Robert Downey Jr. as Louis, Louis Strauss, who is the head of the Atomic Energy Commission, and Matt Damon Matt as Lieutenant Damon. General Leslie Groves. So yeah, so it's shaping up to be a pretty good cast, which is, you know, what we expect from Christopher Nolan and everything. But You must um, be so excited, Helen. A- Another Christopher Nolan film coming your way. <laughs> hey, but there's two women in this. Two chances for them to die. So that's hey, exciting. Hey now, come on. Come on. I'm sorry. I'm overly cynical. I'm sure they'll have great, fully developed 3D roles. There you go. That's much more like it. Uh, speaking of fully developed 3D roles, uh, it looks like the sexorific Ben Affleck, Anna de Armas uh, erotic nookie thriller, <laughs> Deep Water, <laughs> is, um, has been, it's going to be released live to streaming. It's, it's going to bypass mm. cinemas, presumably because nobody wanted to pay for the cost of cleaning the carpets. And... It's okay. going to be on Hulu. Hulu. Hello, Hulu. Uh, it's going to be on Hulu and maybe uh, at some point I would presume possibly star over here on Disney+. And lots of people have been going, this is another one of the 20th Century Studios, 20th Century Fox movies are kind of the, the holdovers of the Disney Fox deal. Um, so it does feel like those movies, by and large, have not been done a great service in this Disney takeover. And yeah. there are obviously people uh, as well on Twitter have been saying that, you know, this is a film that has um, the the physical act of love in it. Uh, is Adrian Lyon returning to kind of his, well, he hasn't made a movie in ages, but it's returning to the kind of uh, erotic thriller genre that he helps pioneer, of course, with, with Fatal Attraction. And, you know, so is that is that something that Disney are interested in? Um it it would seem it would seem not. What are your porn senses telling you, Chris? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going to be flicking around in Star One these nights, and uh, if your Chris Tingle, my Chris Tingle, help you pointing at the screen like Leo DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> it's porn. That's porn. That is porn. Look, I think it it is kind of a shame if we're losing and you know a growing up film studio in Hollywood essentially as a result of this merger mm-hmm. and if you know if there's no if there's going to be no room under that disney umbrella for the kind of films that that fox studios and 20th century fox but particularly fox studios in recent years kind of made then that is a that is a shame because you know mm-hmm. there we have a, already a kind of a shrinking media landscape uh, controlled by fewer and fewer people and if they then limit what they're making, I think that that 
that is not good. Hey, there you go. Let's not blame Disney for this. This is clearly the fault of the millennials. They can't stop looking at their phones. <laughs> this is what it all comes down on. Sorry, Ben, what was that you were saying? I was looking at my phone. <laughs> Why you were saying that? Spending all their disposable money on avocado toast <laughs> instead of erotic thrillers. I mean, my God. Listen, I mean, yeah. there, there's a, there's, there's, there are two sides to that coin, as De Niro says in Heat. There, which one of which is that the last duel came out and flopped in cinemas, mm-hmm. but is already on Star and seems to be going through a, a rediscovery phase already, which is strange for a movie that came out in October. But you know, people seem to be discovering it now in Star and reappraising it and 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 hailing it as you know one of the one of the best films of the year. I'm not sure I'd go quite that far, but I think it's a really really interesting movie. Uh, so perhaps something like Deep Water might this might be the best place for it. Just finally on on news, the nominees for the 2022 Golden Globes were announced, and let's give that the respect it deserves and the coverage it deserves right here on the Empire Podcast. All right, moving on. <laughs> Time now for our second and final guest of this week's episode, who is Paolo Sorrentino, the fantastic Italian director of movies like The Consequences of Love and Il Divo and Youth and The Great Beauty. And he is back this week with The Hand of God, which is now available on Netflix and is a coming-of-age tale that uh, dovetails neatly between a very thinly failed semi-autobiographical tale of the young Sorrentino growing up in Naples and experiencing a number of life events that set him along the path of becoming a film director and the arrival in Naples of one Diego Armando Maradona, uh, which in that football mad town set tongues and pulses a quaking. Um, this is a terrific movie. We'll be discussing it in the reviews section uh, later on. It is warm and opulent and heartfelt and beautiful to look at and emotional and affecting. And one of the reasons it's emotional and affecting is because it details a true life tragedy that befell the young Paolo Sorrentino. And it depicts that tragedy, which is a, a hell of a thing. And it's something we talked about when I spoke to him. He came to London during the London Film Festival. So I spoke to him in October in person in a hotel room. Uh, he speaks English, but not amazing English. And I don't speak any Italian. So luckily, a translator was provided. So that might explain why this is a little shorter than most of our usual podcast interviews. But I do hope you enjoy it. It's a fascinating insight into his mind. Paolo Sorrentino, here you go. Do please enjoy. Hey everyone, it's Chris here. Just jumping in real quick before the interview begins to say that now I've listened back to the interview. A couple of quick things. Uh, we do get into supporter territory. There is the, this film examines a really traumatic event in Paolo Sorrentino's life. Uh, we talk about that. So perhaps, I don't know, maybe wait until you've seen the film before listening to this. And if you can hear a kind of scribbling noise in the background, it's not too bad, but you may be able to hear it. That is Paolo Sorrentino sketching as... I interview him. It's something he does to try and relax and also focus during interviews. So there you go. Two things very, very quickly explained. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast by the writer and the director of The Hand of God, Mr. Paolo Sorrentino. How are you, sir? Fine, thanks. Very well. Good, good, good. How's London treating you? How was London? Yeah, is it uh, how you have a decent time? Wonderful, yeah. I love to come to London. It's my one of my favorite places in the world. Yeah, fantastic. Not quite up there with Naples, though. I'm guessing. Ah, they are different, but uh, there is the same uh, vitality. Yeah, same yeah. Ent- enthusiasm for life. It's okay. 
the same kind of energy it's good for me that i am pessimistic yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so there's so much to talk about in your uh, amazing film but i i wanted to start with the opening quote uh from diego maradona uh yeah. in which you state and i know this is your opinion uh that he is the best footballer of all time and that is something that you have you've seen him in the flesh I never got to see Maradona in the flesh, and I just wanted to know what it, what it was like watching him. Uh, what can I say? Uh, Maradona was a, a guy full of charisma, and it's not easy to find in the world the charisma. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was not um, only a football player. He was uh, somebody that had the charisma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the reason why I loved him. Yeah. <laughs> Someone you can't take your eyes off him when he's you can you have you have to watch him all the time. Yeah, 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 the body the also the body was something of uh, unbelievable. The mm. body compared to what he was able to do with that body. Mm. It's something that uh, yeah, impressed me for all the life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course Maradona's presence that that idea of what he meant to you and what he meant in, uh, to your life. It has a huge impact on the movie. In deciding to write about your experiences and in deciding to write about your life, did you feel in a way that, in the way that the movie came about, because you weren't planning to do this, did you feel in a way that there was the hand of something else, that there was something else guiding you into telling this story at this time? I don't know. I am not able to to, ans- to 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 answer to this question about an end that drove me. No, that drove me. I don't know. I don't know. It, pff, the memories of my family and the, the importance that the family has for a guy is the most important thing in this movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the the relationship with the family is uh, one of the most important things that happen uh, in our life. Yes, yeah. it's the reason why we we found out the world and we know how the world works. It's because of family, and this movie is about my family and uh, what the world was for me, yeah. and why the world is uh, is changed for me now. Yeah, the, I, I believe you wrote the script in forty eight hours initially, anyway, uh, and so it was something that just came to you. This idea to 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 revisit. The, you know, difficult aspect of your life. The work on the movies is 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 all is always long. Mm-hmm. There was a painter about a picture that he sold for a lot of money. When the when the the guy that bought the the painter said, "Why did you? Why is it so expensive if you work to this?" Uh, paint for one hour mm-hmm. he said I worked one hour and all the life <laughs> <laughs> I so, don't remember the name of the painter but he's a genius <laughs> because he said the truth yeah. you can work by instinct but in the truth you found out that you worked all the life to arrive to that moment yeah. absolutely uh, <laughs> that's great so so all your life it's 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 here it's on yes. your shoulder waiting yes okay. yes but not only in this movie in all movies of course yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. indeed a movie is a long process and so yeah and, that's and, it. and with this movie the, the the way that you present and you portray vignettes and episodes from your uh, adolescence 
is really interesting. It's interesting that you start off, the movie starts off with Aunt Patricia, uh, who is such a huge figure in the movie. Uh, and th there was an equivalent aunt for you, wasn't there? Is that why you wanted to start the movie with, with her and not with young you know, Fabietto? Yeah, it's a, that, that character is a mix between the reality and the dream. Every teenager that I know has the dream of a, of a woman, of a, more women. So she, yes, she was real, and at the same time, she she was my dream. It's it's a mix between reality and dream. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's notable that in the movie, the only two characters who see the the, the little monk uh, mm -hmm. are your surrogate and uh, and and Patricia. Yeah, yeah, because the little monk is a sort of uh, idea of creati creativity. Mm -hmm. And uh, she, she is not crazy. She, she is able to think out of the reality. Mm -hmm. And this is the reason why Fabietto recognizes in her a sort of uh, guide, because he has the same dream to work with the fantasy, like the hound. Yeah. And so, so the, the character Fabietto in the, in the movie is not obviously 100% you how close to your experiences and how close to to the teenage you is he for no, example did you have the, the same in the movie obviously the, you know, the the tragic death of of your parents and his parents is the thing that galvanizes him and and sets him on the path to becoming a a film director was that the same for you in a way? Had you had you already yeah, thought about I that? Yeah, I changed the name of the character. Uh, I don't know why, because then I left to my brother and my sister the same name. <laughs> <laughs> but in the truth, uh, it's my story. That yeah. character is very close to me. How I remember me when I was a teenager, of course, my memories can be different. Mm -hmm. Uh, that, that, that's the memory of me now when yeah. I was 16, 17 I don't know if I was like that but mm -hmm. probably I was like that Yeah. were, were you uh, thinking even back then uh, you know, there, there are references in the movie, we hear Seferelli, we, we, we hear Fellini, uh, we see your character going to the, the cinema and trying to watch Once Upon a Time in America <laughs> but not always succeeding in watching Once Upon a Time in America. Uh, was that something that you, as a, as a young boy, as a young man, were you interested, were you fascinated, obsessed with cinema? Yeah, yeah, when, when I was uh, yeah, 18 years old, I found out the cinema and I was, yes, I was obsessed by the cinema. I thought it was, uh, I thought that it was the only thing that I was able to do because the cinema does not require a specific attitude. So it was perfect for me because uh, I never had the patience to to learn something very well, mm -hmm. and uh, to make scene, make movies uh, allows to to do this to not know very well the things. It's you can do beautiful movies if you are not able to know very well the things. Yes, Philip Roth said something. Uh, of similar about the books, he said. He said the best books I have written 
are the books where I was curious about the content, but I didn't know very well that content. If <laughs> I know very well, yeah. it's not a novel, it's more another thing. It's more a, a newspaper article. Yeah. yeah. If you know it well, there's no process of discovery. So, Yeah, yeah. A movie is a, a sort of long research inside the mystery. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I wanted to ask about Once Upon a Time in America, uh, because all the way through the movie, I was I was willing Fabietto to actually watch the film. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and what about yourself? Was it a, a big movie for you? Is that why it's it's in the in the film? <laughs> yeah. Um, Once Upon a Time in America was a big reference for me in order to make movies because I found out the the power of the epic. Mm-hmm. But uh, the things are exactly like uh, in the movie. For a long time, we were not able, for several reasons, to see Once Upon a Time in America. So the VHS was VHS. on on television for a long time. Yeah, and my brother was uh, at that time. You um, the people rent the movies, and if you didn't uh, come back with the movie, you have to pay um, additional money. Fine, yeah. And me and my brother were terrified from the idea to to lose all the money we had because of uh, <laughs> VHS of <laughs> once upon a time in America. So it's a sort of um, of memory of the fear <laughs> at that time. Yeah. But then, finally, when I saw the movies, uh, I saw the movie. I understood that uh, it was worthwhile to wait <laughs> and to see the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a great film, a fantastic yeah. film, and. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, uh, Paolo, when when you decide to tell this story, um, you you go into it knowing that you are going to be tackling the the moment when your parents pass away, mm-hmm. and that scene. I thought uh, I, I, I don't know how tough it is for you to talk about, but I thought that scene was was beautiful because it was uh, your idea of of their last moments together. But it was a beautiful affirmation of their love for each other and in the movie you get such a sense of how much love your mother and your father had for each other um i just wanted to ask about that was that something that gave you in any way pause before you 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 put it on on film forever i don't know to be honest it's impossible to understand for a person which kind of love other people have each other no it's so I imagine I love to Im- I love to think that they love each other a lot but I am not sure about that it's not because it's impossible to 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 have the knowledge of the love between two people it's a mystery that the two people know no no nobody is allowed to go inside the love of other, another couple so I yeah yeah I I loved the idea that there was a, a strange unusual uh, big love uh, between them and yes it was helpful to 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 shoot that uh, yeah probably in an unconscious way it was helpful in order to shoot that delicate uh, scene yes yeah uh, it's a, it's an incredible scene uh, it, thank it you moved me immensely and thank you um, I I I have to ask as well about. The process of, of writing the movie uh, and uh, finding the movie in the edit suite as well, were, were there 
with with a with a film like this, did you have a an end goal in mind, which was you were you were going to finish with young Fabietto going to Rome? You were going to start with the camera approaching uh, Naples in the way that you do, and then in between, how did you structure the rest of the movie in terms of deciding what to keep in and deciding what to leave out? Narrative structure of the movie is very simple. It's the the first part is uh, the life uh, like I know in the first part of my life of something that was completely joyful, uh, uh, light, leggero, lightness. Carefree. Yeah, carefree. And uh, it was perfect because it was the childhood and uh, yeah, the the problems of uh, the life uh, are on the shoulder of other people. Mm -hmm. And um, everything was a joke, everything was a uh, yes, like in the in, in sometime it was melancholic, like the last day of the summer that I tried to tell in that long uh, lunch and mm -hmm. afternoon on the, in the sea. But uh, the melancholic, uh, melancholic, uh, melancholy is something that you can uh, bear, bear, bear. And um, and second part of the movie is another movie is uh, is the life after uh, that you found out that Fabietto found out that uh, the life is another thing that yeah. the the happiness is a short lasts uh, one sum one one summer or one Sunday it's the same thing and um, yes that's it so it was very clear to me that uh, that. Uh, my life at that time was split in two different parts. The first and second, and the first was uh, was beautiful, and the sec second was horrible. And then there is an end, an end where you can uh, you can uh, see uh, very far a sort of a future. Mm -hmm. mm, that's something of good, but it's also something of uh, uh, how can I say? It's something uh, of that that put me in, that put uh, Fabietto in uh, an, in in a condition of uh, solitude. Yeah, because uh, he knows that uh, he will never go back to the happiness of the of his childhood. Nothing can give give you back that happiness. He's he's he man, he doesn't go back there. He and you uh, you've never attained that since. You've never been exactly. close to that, that happiness yeah. since. Yeah, yeah. Paolo, I'm going to let you go, but it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, sir. Thank my you so my much pleasure, the, my pleasure. Thank and, you uh, very much. And sorry for my very long questions. No, 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 no. Sorry for my English. Thank you very much. <laughs> Believe me, your English yeah, is much better than my Italian. Much <laughs> okay, better. Good, good to know. <laughs> <That's cool. laughs> Thank, Thank you so you much. Very much. Take care. Thank you. Okay, so that was Paolo Sorrentino. I'm the only person here who's seen the hand of God in this pod booth, this virtual pod booth of ours. I thought this was absolutely terrific. It's one of my films of the year. Uh, it is, as I said, glorious and immersive and really, really great on uh, as a as a coming of age story, uh, but also great about the, the you know the the beginnings of the creative sparks that led Paolo Sorrentino, who is not, of course, Paolo Sorrentino in the movie. He is given a different name because it's not quite entirely one hundred percent autobiographical, but it's heartfelt and heartrending. Uh, it looks amazing. It makes you want to go to Naples right away. It is less about. Maradona than you might think. Uh, it is less about it's more about his impact and what he means to people and and uh, and his 
you know how he was quickly embraced as a figurehead and as a as a figure of inspiration for people, uh, rather than say a biopic. So it's not necessarily something you can watch in conjunction with the great documentary by Asif Kapadia. But uh, I had a tremendous time with this. We gave it four stars, and I would fully agree with that. The Hand of God is available on Netflix right now. That obviously means we're in the reviews section, where we talk about the movies that you can see on your Silverplex and your Multiplex this week, and. Yes, we talked about The Hand of God, but there really is one film in town this week. It is Spider-Man No Way Home. How the fuck do we talk about this movie? Um, <laughs> Can't yeah. open. Spider-worms everywhere. <laughs> um, who wants to talk about Spider-Man No Way Home first off? I'll set it okay. up. Okay, go on. Okay, because <laughs> <luck> <laughs> it's porn. It's um, porn. That's porn. It's porn. It's I definitely mean, porn. It, it kind of... This is absolutely geek porn. Like it genuinely, it, wet fluid it is, everywhere. Yeah, oh it kind God. of is. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, right. Yeah. Well, this picks up directly after we last saw Tom Holland's Peter Parker at the end of Far From Home, where he has just gone for a you know recreational swing through New York with girlfriend MJ, played by Zendaya, and uh, then suddenly blaring from every giant screen across the city is the face of J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson saying, hey, everybody, Spider-Man is Peter Parker. And also he totally killed Mysterio. And uh, understandably, you know, Parker is a little bit upset by this. Uh, Consequences follow. He tries to reset everything with the help of Benedict Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange, which obviously ends up in disaster and ends up in villains coming in from other spider universes. I'm not telling you anything that isn't available in the trailers that is not the premise of the film. Villains from other spider universes come in as a result of the spell going wrong and Peter basically has to defeat three franchises worth of (laughs) spider villains in order to set things right. Well Two done. Well done. I thought you thread that needle perfectly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that is all we can say about Spider-Man That's No Way Home. Not far off. Not far off. Uh, we yeah. are going to be doing uh, an almost immediate deep dive spoiler special reaction to this, which we're going to be recording tomorrow. Uh, one of the reasons for that is at the moment, as far as we're aware, uh, nobody from the film is doing any interviews uh, for spoiler specials. So we, what we usually do is we wait a couple of weeks and then we, we put up the spoiler special with the interview. Uh, but if there are no interviews, we're just going to do it. Also, Christmas is coming up, so we need to get it recorded and, and up very, very quickly. There we can get into the plot. And there's a mm. lot of plot to get into, and there's a lot of a, lot, st- of a lot of stuff happens in this movie, and a lot of stuff I cannot wait to describe, or mainly just go, "Wow, my God, did you see that thing? It was amazing." Um, but talking about it now in detail is going to be very, very tricky. So I'm going to talk about how mm. it made me feel, uh, because last night's screening made me feel euphoric, absolutely euphoric, in a way that I haven't felt since a certain movie called Avengers Endgame in 2019. It was one of the great screening experiences of my life. Now, you might say that, you know, I'm maybe reviewing the experience more than the film. And in the cold light of day, the film has flaws. Uh, There is no question about that. Uh, We gave it five stars, you know, and I I totally and utterly agree with that because very few things have made me feel uh, the way the Spider-Man No Way Home made me feel last night. Afterwards, we were bouncing out of the screening. We were bouncing out of the screening. I was hugging people. I was fist bumping people. I was screaming in joy. If it had been Jurgen Klopp the movie, I don't think it could have been more satisfying for me. It is, it's one of those things where the movie is fine, the movie has got lots of great things, but as an experience, 
as something that just made me feel joyful and feel like a kid again. It, it, it it's it's almost unmatched. Endgame did something in a really really interesting way. You know the experience of watching that and the various revelations. But I didn't. It didn't quite hit in the same way that this did. It didn't quite land in the same way that this did. There, are, there are things that happened in this movie where I was just giggling with joy. But I remember turning to you at one point, Ben, and going, "Oh my god!" You know, and just nudging you, going, "Oh my god!" This, this film, yeah. there's, this, it's doing something incredible to me. I was sat right next to you, and I can feel yeah. everything you've just said about about the the giggling and the cheering and the clapping and the whooping and all of that is is a hundred percent true. And that this film it gives you that to be back in that space again um having spent h- however long through lockdown revisiting videos of people losing their absolute shit to the big moments in endgame this this gives you that to be back in that space to feel that kind of collective joy and excitement and these things that that mean something and that give you something it felt really really special and the thing that i'm really happy with is that there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on in this film, but what I love about John Watts' Spider-Man movies is in there too, and is given its space and its its room to breathe um, among everything else that's going on. That the sort of teenageriness, the the sort of personal stakes for the characters, that is all in there. It, you have the charm of of, of mm. Peter and MJ, and and all those things that you love about these films and about these incarnations of the characters. It's all there, and the the fact that you can balance that with all the multiversal villainy stuff is kind of mind blowing. It has that high wire act of an Infinity War and an Endgame, where you're like, there are so many elements here. How the hell are you going to con- cohere it? Let alone make the big moments land. Let alone make it sort of easy to follow for for audience members. Uh, it, the fact that it not just does those things, but does them so well and leaves you feeling so invigorated by it is just kind of mind-blowing. I don't know how the fuck they did it, but in Mm. in Kevin Feige we trusted, in John Watts we trusted, and they delivered to such an insane degree. It's. it's, I think massive props to Chris McKenna and Eric Summers for that screenplay, because Mm. what they tried to do with this film is so bold and so audacious and so fucking demented that it would have been so easy to get it wrong and there are moments where they walk the razor thin line between almost like clever self-aware and smug like and it, they, you you can see the edge and they never once set one foot over that line and i think that is an incredibly difficult thing to do and what this film tries to do it tries to sort of wind up essentially two decades worth of mythology and story and somehow tie up loose ends that you didn't even know were still dangling and to give you kind of payoff and almost redeem things that you weren't even, mm. you didn't remember needed redemption. And it pays off all of these various things. And I just came out of this and think it was a masterful piece of filmmaking just in terms of the execution, but just the conception of the whole thing. I mean, I will be the first to say this for me didn't hit me the way that Endgame and Infinity War did, but very few things did. But yeah, I, 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 there's nothing about this film I think that I would change and I, I, I don't know what else to say about it I, I agree with almost everything that's been said but I did have some caveats so I think I, I 100% agree that the, the screenwriting is, is kind of immaculate and the engineering involved is great but, but it also hugely delivers on the emotional side and the character beats and the you know it has the scenes you want to see with you know, with Peter just hanging out with MJ and Ned and just talking nonsense and 
being 17 year olds. You know, it's it delivers on all of that. It delivers on um, Peter and Aunt May and actually having conversations and relationship. It's I loved all of that. I absolutely loved it. I have some quibbles with some of the action scenes, which I thought were Eh, I mean, there's one action scene in a forest. I'm like, why are we in a forest in the middle of the night? This is boring. <laughs> why are we? Oh, look, it's a it's a Hollywood action film with a scene on an off ramp. Oh, there's a shot. Uh, like, uh, you know, some things I would have liked a bit more from. I know that sounds churlish to say, but it's true. And and there were times when I felt like the the the, the film just hand waved stuff. Early on, it hand waves a whole bunch mm-hmm. of stuff that could have more elegantly, I thought, been tied up with. Even just like a news report saying something. Anyway, I'll, I'll discuss that in the spoiler special, but I, I felt like there were little bits that could have been more elegant in that bit of the storytelling, in, in the sort of world-related storytelling. But in terms of the emotional yeah. stuff, in terms of Peter himself, in terms of his family and friends, I thought it, it blew it out of the park. And, and it is, it's giddy-making. It is delightful. It's not cap picking up Mjolnir because nothing is, but it's pretty <laughs> damn freaking close. So uh, yeah, I had a blast. I think you're right, Helen. I think the the because there's so much going on in this movie, there's so much story to tell. They shorthand so much of it, and I thought the yeah. the you know to get to the good stuff in a way. And I think now in the cold light of day, we're going to go see it again tonight. So I'm going to be totally 100% in the tank again. Come 11 o'clock tonight, but in the cold light of day, the blooms coming off the spider rose a little bit. And flaws are presenting themselves, little things that, you you know, some plot stuff, some plot holes, some things like that. We'll, we'll get into the spoiler special. So I say maybe as a film, this is weird, but you're going to have to almost deforce these things. You're almost going to have to separate them into two into two distinct things. As a film, I would say this is, this is four stars. It's maybe a bit crowded, maybe a little bit muddled in places. Um, but that last hour, once it kicks in, Oh my god, it's incredible! But as an ex- so as a film, four stars. As an experience, one of the greatest I've ever had, and it's one of the reasons why you know we were already planning to do the spoiler special. But it's one of the reasons why afterwards Ben and I were literally like, "Is there a midnight screening? Is there a midnight <laughs> screening?" Turns out there yeah. wasn't because apparently Sony there have wasn't. said that they they no. didn't let exhibitors um, show. Um, show it at midnight on the day it opened, which is a very unusual thing to do, I I would say. I don't know why. I think they're trying to keep spoilers from getting out, but mate, guys, the spider cat is out of the spider bag as far as as that is concerned. If you look at uh, Twitter trending topics, which I do not advise you to do. (laughs) No, do do, not. You know, just stay away from that sort of stuff and, you know, mute everything you can think of uh, vis-a-vis Spider-Man No Way Home on social media. Worked for me, that's for sure. But, you know, afterwards, I was so so utterly high on this movie that I wanted to experience it again. And I'd be fascinated to see how it is watching it without an audience to feed off the energy of those those big moments. But last night was was one of the great the great experiences. I didn't have the experience of watching Infinity War at a packed um packed screening because I was doing other stuff. I I had the experience of Endgame which I've talked about, but you know my wife for example talks about Years ago, I sent her. T- I I was out of the country, so I gave her my tickets to the Transformers multimedia, and she still talks about that. She still talks about the reaction in the crowd when Optimus Prime arrived and said, "My name is Optimus Prime," and everyone just lost their shit. I didn't have that. 
And last night I had that and it kind of made up for everything. And it was, it was absolutely incredible. And I, you know, it's, it's one of those weird things. I cannot think about this movie with a big smile going on my face. It is giddy and it is goofy. And this morning I had to get up and watch Hawkeye episode five. And we are loving Hawkeye. We're loving Hawkeye. Hawkeye is terrific. But I just felt, oh, this is very much after the Lord Mayor show, isn't it? This is a little bit like, Hawkeye episode five is fine, but you know what his main problem is? It's not Spider-Man No Way Home. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's a very, very unfair um, bar or criteria for me to apply here because, quite frankly, nothing else is. Um, so, but there you go. I I, I love this. I absolutely loved it. It, it just, you know, it, you know, that question we had a couple of weeks ago about is the MCU jumping the shark? Um, if it is, this film unequivocally jumps back over again. <laughs> I, I think Marvel this year has actually had an incredible year. Between, uh, uh, If you've listened to the Eternal Spoiler Special, you'll know my turnaround on that film from uh, mixed first viewing to, to absolutely loving it the second time around. Shang-Chi, I still think, is fantastic. Had such a good time with Shang-Chi. Uh, the, the stuff they've really knocked out of the park with the TV stuff this year, with WandaVision and Loki and, and where Hawkeye is at the moment, they have done so, so much. And... Spider-Man, how good Spider-Man is, really just tips it over the line for me in terms of, I honestly think one of Marvel's best years. Some people will think that's wild. I think it's one of the best years Marvel has ever had, especially in the light of this film. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't speak at the end of this film. I, the, my genuine reaction was just that my my brain was broken. I couldn't. James turned to me <laughs> as we were ex- exiting the cinema. And was like, ah, and I just sort of went, ah, 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 yeah. was all I could muster. I couldn't, I just couldn't <laughs> collect myself. We've been starting these, these experiences, obviously, because of the pandemic. Mm. And when we have seen something like a Black Widow, it's been in, you know, it's been in screen rooms. And Black Widow doesn't deliver the same punch emotionally, visually, physically, all that sort of stuff. Eternals, we saw it, you know, it was, what, two thirds full screen room Hell's mm-hmm. Bells? I, I, you know, mm-hmm. and it didn't, we don't know the characters, we're not plugged into the characters, there are histories. And yes, I love that movie. I think it's a tremendous movie. Uh, yes, I am that guy, the treasurer, uh, founder, and secretary of the Eternals fan club. Hey, how are you? But this hit for me in a way that I, I just haven't had that experience. And I honestly, there might be even a part of me that was going, I'm not sure I'm ever going to have that experience again. You know, because of the way that pandemic has changed our cinema going habits and how things just seem to have transformed in that regard. And to have it back in this way, this reminded me of what is possible with cinema. This reminded me of what cinema is capable of making us feel like again. And, you know, I'm going to obviously people are going to dismiss me as the Marvel guy and Mr. Captain in the tank and, you know, Probably Marvel Studios and Kevin Feige underpants and all that stuff, and and there will people there will be people who are down in this movie, but for me it just elicited an almost primal emotional reaction in me. This is a film for all our you know internal seven year old geeks. You know this is a film. It is a little bit fan service, but in the best possible way, in the sense that it absolutely understands what people love about these characters, and it does that, and. And I think that is what makes it work and what makes it sing and what, what has made us all as good as we are. I just love it. <laughs> I do love it. I uh, it, It's not what I... Th- I mean, look, I, I went on record as soon as we kind of knew what this film was going to be, saying I thought this was a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. I didn't want uh, those other iterations of the Spider-Man universe to be in the MCU. I kind of felt already that the fact that it was knocking on the door of the Sony-verse was bothering me. And it felt to me like this would be the film that would 
destroy Spider-Man for me. Like I loved Homecoming and I loved Far From Home. And I just thought that the Sony-ness of this and them trying to do something which felt gimmicky and unnecessary, just I was not here for it on any level. And I have never been more wrong, really, because they, you know, not only does it turn out that it wasn't a terrible idea, it was a genius idea, but they executed it perfectly, kind of as I've said. And and I'm I am a hundred percent apologetic to everyone involved in this film for ever doubting their ability to do it. So now that the Thanos was right mug is a thing, can we also get a James was wrong mug to go with it? It's like a set and buy them together. Yeah. This film is perfectly balanced as all things should be. It is. And we should we should say, you know, what, what James is referring to, of course, is there was early reports that Alfred Molina was going to be in the movie as is Dr. Octopus from the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films and you know, recently it has been confirmed, of course, that Willem Dafoe is in the movie. I don't think I'm giving anything away that hasn't been revealed in A, trailers and B, promotional materials. Uh, Willem Dafoe is in the movie as Norman Osborn from the first Raimi Spider-Man movie. And Jamie Foxx is in it as Electro from The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Um, and those those guys are really good. And I, you know, and I, I, I'm tiptoeing around spoilers here, but I, I will say that they're in the movie more than I thought they were going to be. And... Uh, they are terrific, and yes, you could probably argue that you know it's it's designed to give you that that sort of sugar rush of nostalgia, nostalgia blast. Uh, but again, there's something about the way that this works in a way that other movies that have tried stuff like this haven't worked mm-hmm. um, that might bear further investigation in the spoiler special. But in case you hadn't, you know, in case you've forgotten, and in case you hadn't already tweaked by now, five stars for Spider-Man: <laughs> No Way Home. Uh, it is terrific. Follow that, the tender bar. <laughs> okay, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, this is the new film from George Clooney as director rather than star. It's set in Long Island from the early 70s onwards, and uh, it has a young uh, kid called JR, just known as JR, played initially by Daniel Ranieri and then by Ty Sheridan, who is growing up without a father, and he kind of depends on his uncle. Charlie, played by Ben Affleck, for kind of support and advice and hangs out at his uncle's bar whenever he can. And then, you know, it's about him kind of growing up, trying to figure out what he wants to do in life, trying to begin to do that, uh, trying to figure out his love life as well. And and through it all, kind of coming back to Uncle Charlie for advice and support that he can't get from his really, really terrible father, who like is in the film, played by Max Martini, um, Mm. but not an emotional presence uh, of any sort. Lily Rabe plays his mum, by the way, and Christopher Lloyd, his grandfather. I was sort of promised this was, you know, a kid hanging out at a bar looking for a father figure, finding it in his uncle and various other people in the bar, maybe. That's not really what this is. There's actually very little time, relatively speaking, in the bar. It's more him going off to school and, you know, having a very ill-judged love affair in college and as is, I suppose, traditional and getting his start in his life and everything. And I I sort of find it a little bit less involving than the film I thought I was going to get, to be perfectly honest. I thought it was going to be a little bit more kind of rooted in one place and a little bit more kind of particular. And it felt a little bit general and kind of loose and very laid back, not necessarily in a bad way, but just in a slightly unsatisfying way. I feel like we've seen these coming of age stories before. I think what works really well is just this, the kind of male bonding stuff and the, you know, the search for some kind of father figure if you don't have your own and and the, the kind of, you know, substitutes that he finds and how they help him. 
but I kind of wanted more of that. I would have actually liked more of Uncle Charlie. He's kind of a supporting role and I think he's much more interesting than JR himself. So that would have been good. So mm. yeah, f- fun and well acted certainly, but not essential in my mind. There, there wasn't, there's no drama in it. There's none, pretty much none. <laughs> so I, I kind of wanted just a little bit more yeah. from it. Okay, so that is going to be on Prime Video, I think, on January 7th, and it is out right now in uh, cinemas. It is a Curzon release, so check out Curzon Cinemas if you want to see The Tender Bar. We gave it three stars. Next up is Swan Song, which stars Mahershala Ali, a.k.a. The New Blade, Jimbo. Yes, this is the other Swan Song from this year, not to be confused with the Todd Stevens film in which Udo Kier plays a retired hairdresser. Udo Kier, also from Blade. Also from Blade. It's a Blade reunion, oh but not because it's a new Blade. It's a whole Blade passing of the torch. Udo Kier has passed the fangs on to Mahershala Ali. Multiverse confirmed in <laughs> Swan Song. That's exactly what this is. Uh, no, this is, of course, none of those things. This is Benjamin Cleary's film, and it stars Mahershala Ali as Cameron, and he's a graphic designer uh, who is terminally ill but has not told his partner, Poppy, played by Naomi Harris. Instead, he has gone to Glenn Close's clinic, whereby she offers a service where she will clone you and give you the opportunity to essentially transfer all of your memories and personality into the clone, and the clone can then step into your life and pick up where you left off. And if it all goes well, if you're happy with it, then the clone's memory of being a clone is erased, and they essentially continue as you and continue your life. So it's after you're gone, your life carries on without you. So this works on a number of levels for me. I, I should point out right now, I cried through a significant <laughs> amount of this film, so much so I think I was dangerously dehydrated by the end of it. This begins, in fact, with, I think, one of the greatest meet-cutes genuinely I have ever seen in which uh, Cameron and uh, Poppy meet on a train in the future. Bear in mind, this does take place in the future where we all live in a kind of an Apple store and robots come and deliver you chocolate bars, which is lovely. Um, <laughs> and everyone wears all birds on their feet. But they meet and he's ordered a chocolate bar and he's thought he's put it on the table and she sits down opposite him and she starts eating the chocolate bar and then he's eating the chocolate bar and then and then it's whose chocolate bar is it and then when she leaves he realizes it was actually her chocolate bar and he was eating hers and not the other way around and it's just delightful that's the douglas adams thing they're having the douglas adams mm. he he, yeah. Yeah, he told this story on um on a chat show years ago on a u.s talk show where he sat down at this guy this guy sat down next to him at a at a, at a railway station and started eating Douglas Adams biscuits without saying anything. And Douglas Adams was just like, "What the hell's going on?" Being British, he didn't say it. It didn't say anything. It just kept eating the biscuits, and the guy just kept eating the biscuits as well. And then the guy got up and went for his train, and that's when he realised he'd been eating the other guy's biscuits. Um, oh, yeah. and then that is so literally exactly yeah. the same the same device. But it's it's beautifully executed here, and they have incredible chemistry, the two of them. But you know, as lovely as that is, there's this really sort of like heartrending bittersweet sort of like undercurrent whereby he's making the decision does he go ahead with this thing does he let this clone replace him in his life leaving his wife and indeed his son and his wife is pregnant as well uh, and letting this clone carry on but crucially without telling them that this is happening he's not told them he's dying and he's not telling them that this is what's going to happen it would step into his life and he would be the only one who would know and so a lot of this film is his internal struggle with the idea of doing that and the ethics of doing that and the grief of saying goodbye to his family and then also it's kind of a a meditation on you know what is self what is identity what is our legacy and what we leave behind is this basically the hugh jackman bit of the prestige well i mean film (laughs) to an extent i mean actually you know more than that i would actually say is i don't know if you guys saw david wilde's uh, anthology show from earlier this year called solos but it's uh, genuinely the second episode of that uh, which is just called tom stars anthony mackie and it is literally the exact same 
thing. It is that particular episode is a two-hander. Well, I guess a one-hander. And it's Anthony Mackie talking to Anthony Mackie as himself and his clone talking about what will happen when this clone takes over his life. Like, it is the exact same concept. But there it is just a conversation. It is a dialogue. Whereas in this, it's a, there's a whole narrative built around it. And actually, this this one does it far better uh, for my mind. And I think part of that is because Glenn Close is fantastic as the person who's kind of trying to guide him through it and almost pressure him into doing it. And Aquafina is there as someone who has allowed her clone to take over her life. And she is staying at this institute, essentially dying on her own, away from her family. So she's not even enjoying her final days with her family. She is there having allowed her clone to take over. But the conversations that he has with himself, playing both himself and the clone, uh, are incredible. And you know, there's a lot of sort of philosophical musing in this, as I kind of mentioned, which I really, really enjoy. But more than that, it's just the emotion of it, of love and and partings and closure and saying goodbye to the person you love and to your life and whether or not it makes it better or worse to hand it over, essentially, to someone else who will carry on in your stead. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot of emotional turmoil in this and you kind of feel every inch of it. Um, I know this has had actually slightly mixed reviews, but I loved it. We gave it four stars and I entirely endorsed that. I thought this was a delightful film. Oh, can't wait to see it. I interviewed Ben Cleary about this for uh, Empire Online when the trailer came out and it looks fascinating. He spoke about it um, beautifully. I James, is it worth the emotional brutality? Because even when I was watching the trailer, when I was speaking to him, when you were talking about it, I'm just like, <laughs> this sounds great. I don't think I can deal with that right now. It's so sad. It's so very, very sad. But it's not the kind of film that leaves you crushed at the end. Like you are in floods of tears, but it's okay. Do you know what I mean? It kind of it makes you feel like things are okay. And I actually do think it's worth it. And I'm not normally one for films that send me through the emotional ring. I don't generally appreciate it. But in this case, I genuinely think it was it was worth the, the tears and the snot and everything to, to get through the experience of this film. So, yeah, I would say watch it. All right. Snot and all. Snot and all. Snot and all. It's not a bad film. Four stars. Four stars then for Swan Song. And finally, this week, we have Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut, The Lost Daughter. Hell's Bells. Yeah, so this follows uh, Olivia Coleman as Lida, um, who is a, pro- a professor, a, a literary professor, who has taken a, su- a place for the summer in Greece and is basically just, you know, still doing work, still researching and correcting papers and things like that. But she's doing it on the beach, um, which is a very smart, s- sensible solution to life in general. Um, but there's this noisy extended family who kind of disturb her holiday and are also on the beach every day. And she becomes kind of fascinated with uh, Dakota Johnson's Nina, who's a young mother, and with her daughter. And they, she sort of has this weird fixation on them, which isn't entirely clear why at first. And it sends her sort of spiralling back into her, her own life. And you see flashbacks to her as a young mother about the same age, played by Jessie Buckley, dealing with her own two daughters. This is based on the Elena Ferrente novel or, or novella. It's one of her shorter books. And it's basically dealing with the kind of uncomfortable, unflattering, uh, non-Instagrammable side of motherhood. Um, the, the, the fact that it does involve giving up a huge amount of your autonomy, of your of your life uh, in, in many cases, that there is a sort of grinding, endless toil to it. You know, the... The girls um, crying tends to be like recorded really, really loud on the soundtrack. And it's just this wearisome kind of howl going on and just driving right into your skull. And 
And that's because, you know, these mothers, they can't, they can't escape. You have to obviously look after your child. You have to do what's right and everything else. And it's that pressure and that expectation that is kind of at the heart of all of this. And yeah, and it's about this strange relationship between the very kind of prickly, withdrawn leader and, and the very friendly, likable Nina. And, you know, what kind of develops from it. It, it doesn't go where I was expecting at all. Um, it's not as broad or as big a story as I was expecting, but I think it's quite effective in showing you the kind of the, the, the darkness maybe underneath people's skin and the and the regrets and the the bitterness that can kind of grow. Uh, and also the moments of kind of redemption and love and and the the upside um to all of this sacrifice and to all of this pain. So I, I think it's it's quite a an understated film, but I feel like it's gonna stay with me quite a bit and sort of linger on mm. a little bit. It doesn't it doesn't say a lot of things out loud and, and super clearly. It's a little bit more power of the dog, you know, in, yeah. in that sense that there's a lot of stuff going on under the surface. But um but yeah, I think it's a really, really promising start for Gyllenhaal. I hope she does much more. Yeah, absolutely. I hear really great things about it. I just haven't had a chance to see it yet. Yeah. Uh but very excited to do so. Oh, and it goes without saying that Olivia Coleman is astonishing, but you know, like you know, broken record much. Yeah, when is that news? Yeah. Now that the film's out, if Maggie Gyllenhaal doesn't mind returning Taylor Swift's scarf, that would be great. I know she's been busy, there's been a lot going on, but <laughs> make time for that, please. <laughs> we gave this one four stars, four stars for The Lost Daughter. On that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. And as a result, that is it for this year's Empire Podcast, folks, because there is absolutely no way that we'll be putting out a very special Christmassy episode of the podcast. Not numbered, of course, to avoid fucking up the run-up to episode 500. We're not going to be putting that out next week. And if we were, we certainly wouldn't be joined by Risa Fans and Tom Hollander, stars of The Kingsman. We wouldn't be joined by Julia Ducournau, director of Titan. And we wouldn't be joined by Adam McKay, writer and director of Don't Look Up. So just, just let you know that that is definitely not happening next week that there is not going to be a very special Christmassy episode of the Empire podcast next week 100% okay there is yeah too many guests too many guests what are you going to do but anyway send us your Christmas questions we'll make it a whole, a whole bunch of Christmassy fun we'll have we'll have a great time just not thrusting on an open fire all that sort of stuff anyway until we meet again until then until that auspicious occasion it is goodbye from my three colleagues of such lethal cunning squad cast names Fantastic Ben and where to find him. Ben Travis. Hello, I'm I'm right here. Oh, hey oh, Ben. You found me. Well that was easy. Yeah. Yay. That was a very short game. Yeah. Didn't like it. <laughs> Didn't like that game. Must <laughs> say. Wasn't porn. Yeah, wasn't porn. I anything that's I'm not glad. porn, I frown upon. <laughs> I'm thrilled about that. <laughs> Uh, it is goodbye from an unbearable weight of massive talent. The oh, thank you, Chris. That's very kind of you. The, goodbye. The ever modest James Tyler. Uh, it's goodbye from ho 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 h o h h o h h o h Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. Toodaloo. And it's goodbye for me, Christmas Hewitt, because that is definitely it for the last podcast of the year. I'm off to wrap porn and put it under the tree. Thanks for listening. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs> Bye.